Hi, I'm your host, Susan Nay. Welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out. It's a series designed to help you demystify HR and the human resource processes. We're going to talk about people management and get the goods on and see how all this stuff works. You're going to hear from everyday heroes and get their perspectives as we touch on a wide variety of topics, topics that impact us in our work and in our work environments. You'll find nuggets for your treasure chest of learning. Hopefully you'll discover insights for your personal and your professional growth. I'm glad you're here. I suspect it's because you want to be the very best version of yourself, your personal best, and that you get understanding these systems and processes will help you on your journey, on your path. You ready to dare to soar? Want to join me at flight school? Let's do this. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out, Demystifying HR and People Management. I'm very fortunate to have as today's guest, Steve Servick. Steve's an assistant fire chief with Surrey. Welcome, Steve. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. I'd like initially to just say a little bit about you, if that's okay. Sure. I love hearing about myself. <laughs> Go for it. Good stuff. Steve's been on the front lines of the fire services for 25 years, actually over 25 years. As a mental health and wellness advocate, Steve shared his story with thousands of people across North America. He survived his battle with depression thanks to the support of his family and friends. That support allowed him to rebuild his life, and now he helps others who have decided to fight their anxiety and their mental illness. In the fire culture, or other workplaces as well, Steve believes that we can work together to, bring down the, to break down the misconceptions attached to mental health, to dispel the fear of stigma, to empower people to speak up and to ask for help. His websites are Steve Serbic, and that's S-E-R-B-I-C.com and muscularmentalhealth.com. Steve has a series of podcast um, episodes, uh, Undercover Mental Health. He lives on Vancouver Island with his wife and two children. And The Unbroken is Steve's first book, just released, available on Amazon, and I understand at many of your local bookstores as well. So, Steve, thank you. I really appreciate your agreeing to be here with us today. I'm really interested in hearing your insights and learning more about your journey. Thanks, Susan. I, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. And I, I know um, when I was in my Maddie course many years ago, and you were one of the people that were organizing it, uh, that I realized what leadership really looked like um, back then. And it's nice to be on a show on the other side where you're doing a podcast and about leadership and I'm one of your guests. It's cool for me. It's a neat transition. So I'm very happy to be here. Isn't it interesting how paths cross over our lives? Yeah, this yeah. is so cool. Um, anyways, I want to start and thank you. Um, I want to start first with what called you to become a firefighter? Uh, you know, I, I was a lost little kid growing up um, on Boundary Road, I call it. We call it the hood in Burnaby, but basically it separates East Vancouver from Burnaby. And uh, I got in a lot of trouble as a kid. That's uh, part of my what the book is written about. Um, and my dad brought me down to Inner City Athletic Center, which is on Main and Hastings, and he got me to start boxing there. And I was sitting on a part. I was sitting on a bus stop waiting for the number 14 Express to the Kootenay Loop. And many people in Vancouver will know that bus. Um, 
And I saw a fire truck from Engine 2 in Vancouver go by, and a firefighter was nice enough to graciously smile at a skinny little kid in a white T-shirt and a porn rain on a bus stop. And when he went by, I said, wow, that guy's like a superhero. I want to be that. And you know what, Susan? I speak in three to four dozen high schools a year, and I tell the same part. I tell them that if you want to be something, whether it be a doctor, lawyer, pilot, firefighter, Put that vision in your head and never let it go because I know if you do that, it will happen. And I'm standing here in front of you to tell you I wanted to be a firefighter. That's all I wanted to be in my life. And yeah, it took me a long time. You know, it took me seven years and 13 application processes, but I got it because I never let it go. And that's a message to young people, I think. I love the persistence. I also love that through your podcast, one episode you do. So you want to become a firefighter and actually work with a a new recruit. Um, actually, I wouldn't mind just the, the rigor of the recruitment process is intensive. Um, and it's one that everyone has to go through if they want to become a firefighter. When you went through the process, and I know it was a number of years ago now, do you remember what it entailed? And could you share a little bit about that? Well, I will tell you, I, this is going to date me, um, but I was just out of high school and in 1983, I applied at Vancouver Fire Department. They posted two positions. They had over 5,200 applications. 1,200 of us went to the physical. The physical is very, very tough. Uh, 400 of us went to the interview at SFU and 60, sorry, 400 went to the written and 60 went to the interview. And I was a 19-year-old kid and I didn't get called to the interview and I was devastated. Mm -hmm. But that's the fire service. Um, a lot of departments do psychometric testing at the very beginning. So you, you apply and then you say you get a rejection letter. And people can't understand why, but um, the, the world is very different from what I applied to now because um, everybody's worried about post-traumatic stress. Everybody's about, worried about hiring the right person. Uh, diversity plays into that. Uh, you know, there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of things you have to hit. But back then and before I started, I'm not joking, it was a, there were farmers like they would just went out and said, Does anybody want to become a firefighter? Mm -hmm. You know, when I started, I was bagging groceries at a grocery chain in Vancouver called Stong's making twenty one seventy five an hour. And I left there to become a firefighter to make thirteen dollars and fifty cents. So I I took a big hit and that, <laughs> you know, think about it. If I had a family or something back yeah. then, there's no way I'm making that move. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. So, yeah. um, but it's hard. It's hard for young people to go through. I, I got on this journey of helping kids um, when uh, I was working in Esquimalt and we started a list of 15, which I wasn't totally in favor of, but we, we created a list of 15 people. We were only hiring two. Once we hired those two, there's 13 people that keep sending me updates. Like, they're mm -hmm. so excited to, you know, I have their life in their hands. So I went to the HR director. I said, hey, I'll do it on my own time. What are your thoughts? Are I help these kids get hired somewhere else? She said, why would you do that? I said, well, I think there's benefit for me and us as an organization because I'm sitting on the other side of the table. I might be able to learn more about what kind of candidates are out there. And, you know, these are different thinkers now. Millennials are like just a whole different ball of wax. I got two of them. But I helped every single one of them get hired. And the only one that didn't get a job was someone that said, I've changed my mind. But it was a great experience for me. It took me two years uh, to help them, but resumes. And we, so because I was anxious in the interview and that podcast you're talking about is a firefighter that was so anxious. He had a coaching person. He had all this stuff. But when he walked in that room, he just blew up. And that's mm -hmm. what I help kids with. You can't blow up 
in there. You got to be able to get through that because what the people on the other side of the table will say is if you blow up in there, you'll blow up when you go to a call. And yeah. Uh, that, yeah. And that's not necessarily true. People are anxious in interviews, but they oh, can do yeah. a very good job out there. Right. Yeah. Boy, that Steve, that's leadership. And yeah. you know what? You're, you're modeling mentorship. It's, I don't know about you, but at this point in my life, I look back and I think I've had two mentors who were just incredibly special men to me. And that's who you are to the individuals that you worked with. So, Val, thank you. Yeah, you made a big difference in their lives. I just, I want to talk a little bit more about the recruitment process. Uh, I actually took a look at another city's um, process online. I didn't see anything about psychological in the, the process that people go through. And I know in your job, you see a lot of really disturbing stuff. Did I miss something or is, is there a psychological component to uh, the, the process that people go through to get to be a firefighter? Uh, in the department I work in, we do psychometric testing. Everything is looked at through a psychologist before the, the resume and the application process advances. And they make decisions based on uh, what the scores are of that psychometric. Okay. And a lot, of, a lot of people will get... Um, will not make it through based on that psychologist's report. Okay, good. So good. we do a lot. It's expensive though. So a lot of smaller departments can't afford to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, that's very different. That's fairly new. Um, but it's, is it effective? I don't think we'll know that for 10 to 15 years. I mean, is it the mm -hmm. right thing to do? Uh, recruitment. Uh, the last two people I hired uh, both had been through some, some one really tragic circumstance recovered one had a personal issue recovered i really wanted to hire people that had been through adversity that's all i wanted I, you know mm -hmm. one had a, a job he worked in a shipyard and one was worked in a uh i can't remember what it was a big huge lumber facility but they'd been through a lot of adversity in their life and that's what i was looking for um so i mean i think it all depends on who's who's doing the hiring and what they're looking for but i'm always looking for someone resiliency for me the definition is you get the crap kicked out of you or you go down but you get back up and if i can mm -hmm. see that in anybody's resume or in the interview yeah they're winning they're winning me over in that interview because that's what i think you need to be able to do in a fire service you see kids you see tragic events that you relate to your own personal situation mm -hmm. and you got to get over that and so that's that's kind of what i look for oh you're making sure that what somebody's bringing into the job actually fits with the realities of the job. And that's, that's critical. I don't think I'm stretching to suggest that many people view firefighters as the epitome of strength in all aspects of the word. There are heroes, but it's a huge image to live up to. And although unquestionably strong, you're also humans with the same emotions and fears and insecurities as the rest of us. You share in your TED talk or TEDx talk that, Surveys conducted have found that 95% of firefighters admit that they feel critical incident stress, understandably. 65% admit that they're traumatized by the calls. And yet over 80% don't feel that they can talk to a peer or seek help about how they're feeling due to the concern that they might be perceived as weak or unfit for duty. I know you yourself have said, I'm okay when you really aren't. You've been in the fire service for over 25 years, but this doesn't seem to be getting better, which I suspect is what's called you to be doing the work that you're doing. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> we talk about a stigma um, and crushing the stigma. If you listen to my podcast, I always 
talk about crushing the stigma, but what people have to understand is that stigma will probably never go away. It's very powerful. <clears throat> people do not want to be looked at as weak. I didn't want to. Uh, my, my greatest concern when I had my mental health crisis in the middle of my career was that no one finds out about it. I didn't say I want to get better so I could take care of my family. I didn't say, um, you know, I, I, I'm just I want to, I'm ready to seek help. All I cared about is that nobody knew. Mm. So that stigma still exists. It's very powerful. Um, we put on a uniform and we're perceived as strong people. Um, and we're out there doing it and we're protecting people. And the fire service is, major is largely a, a comfort service where we go to everything. If you don't want drugs or a ride to the hospital or someone to show up with a gun and keep the peace, you call the fire service for everything else, water leaks, <laughs> full arrest, heart attacks, you know, people, everything. And so our job there is to be stoic. And when we go with someone who's we couldn't revive, that someone they just spent 50 years of their life with, our job is to, in that small moment of time, whether it be 10 minutes or half an hour, is to try and be stoic for that person and say something kind. And there's no training for that. Like, we just have to figure that out. But what happens is I've spoken to thousands of firefighters across North America, and the stories are all the same. We have our own personal lives and a lot of them are going sideways. Yet when we come to work, we put on this uniform and we perform. I call us performers. Um, firefighters are occupational athletes. They train mentally and physically for an event every single day. They just don't know what that event is. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in my case, um, I never ever thought I would be um, affected by mental illness. Um, but what I didn't realize or admit to myself is that I'd been affected by it my whole life. It's only the trauma that I saw that kind of was the Pandora's box for everything to come out and me to crash, mm -hmm. which in one way may have saved my life. Mm -hmm. And that's my message to people and not just first responders, but anybody, if you're struggling, you know, maybe do a self-check, do a self-awareness. Why am I feeling so sad? How come? Because what you do is you end up beating yourself up, especially as a first responder. There's something wrong with me. I shouldn't be feeling this way. And what, for me, exercise, laughter for sure, but drinking really worked for me. No, mm. it didn't. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but I thought it did. Those but, three things. And I, you know, having worked within local government and, and police services, you know, you hear that often people do resort to drink, you know, with their buddies. And, and you know, that's, that's another out, which may not be mental illness, but uh, still a concern. It's super cathartic. I mean, I know this isn't going to sound politically correct, but if you know me, I'm not that politically correct. <laughs> so when you have a bunch of drinks with people, I'll give you an example. Every year I have a fishing derby at my house in Victoria and 12 to 20 firefighters come for three days. They break all the furniture. They say a bunch of four letter words. My wife smiles and laughs and she thinks it's the greatest thing she's ever seen because it's men turning into little kids mm. and it's cathartic. Mm -hmm. It is, it is clinical counseling in itself. I'm not promoting drinking or anything, but when you go after a bad call with a bunch of people that you respect and you have two drinks and you drop your armor and you say something or cry, um, there's power in that. And sometimes that's where people get their courage from. I'm not promoting that type of, I don't know what it is. I, I, I want to call it support, but yeah, but it, 
I'm promoting the social aspect that is gone in the fire service these days. When I was a firefighter, you know, those 10 years, we did that three times a week. Did it get people into trouble? Absolutely. People aren't smart when they do that. But I do think that is what's missing. That is the missing piece is that social aspect of the camaraderie, which mm-hmm. is gone. Like yeah. it's there on the job. It's there at the hockey tournaments. But those hockey tournaments and fishing things are far and few between. Oh, especially with the pandemic. You know, I think that's why well, we're seeing yeah. an increase in, in people struggling with their mental health. Sure. I, gonna, I and just you're sharing what you've just shared, you recognized and your family recognized that you were struggling. And as a result, you were able to do something about that. You shared in your TEDx talk that you lost your mentor and a dear friend to suicide. You had no idea he was struggling. Um, It's obvious that many, including your friend, have perfected uh, hiding uh, from others and maybe even themselves. Uh, you've shared that the suicide rate for this occupation is high. What's going to change this? Especially as you share, there's less of that camaraderie, which is where friends could potentially see that someone else is struggling and and reach out to help. Well, I'm going to go back to your previous question about the stigma. Um, So you have a chaplain coming into a fire hall. A good friend of mine had promoted me to be out there speaking about mental health. We had hosted uh, several events together. We created a four R's. You know, you recognize that someone's struggling, you respond, you refer them to clinical counseling because we're just dudes and you reconnect and you make sure they know they're supported through the rest of their journey. Uh, This man is in my fire hall one day and I am struggling. I've been struggling for about a month. There was lots of organizational changes. There was lots of stuff going on and I really did want to talk to him uh, because I felt I could drop my arm earth. We talked about everything from sadness to suicidal thoughts to our whole life. A very kind, supportive human being where I could definitely drop my armor. We had a bad call and he was in there defusing firefighters and he'd been there for two hours. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I think back to that moment a lot. And he walked by my office and I'm in there. I'm super busy and uh, I'm, I'm pretty unhappy at that moment. And. He says, hey, Steve, are you okay? And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, yeah, Ken, I'm fine. And he said, are you sure? Because the firefighters say you're not yourself. I go, no, I'm not. I told him that part. No, I'm not, but I'm good. He goes, okay. But if you want to talk, I'm around. I said, I, I know, Ken. And just before he left the door, he turned around. And he said, are you sure you're okay? I said, Ken, you're the fire department chaplain. Would I lie to you? And he had this big smile on his face and he said, Okay, Steve, but don't hesitate to reach out. I said, okay, Ken, have a good day. That was the last time I ever spoke face-to-face to Ken Gill before he took his life. Oh, my God. So you have two people out there talking about the stigma, talking about, you know, how you got to take a knee, talking, talking. And, yeah, that was, you know, I look back on that moment, and I had no idea. You know, Ken suffered from depression just like I did, um, but we – I thought we were managing it. And that's what happens, right? Mm-hmm. You, you think you're managing, especially when you're clouding that with, say, uh, alcohol or something. You do manage it. You mm-hmm. do go sideways. You are in this thing where you can just go through your life. And then, but yeah, it, uh, I think about that moment a lot. And what's going to change? Well, I think we should realize the stigma's here to stay. I think that's one thing, you know, people don't like that, but it's true. That stigma 
every person that I've spoken to has a story about returning to work. And the majority of them say to me, I was off for eight months. Uh, I did this. I did this. You know, uh, I wish nobody knew. That's mm, still, wow. you know, captains come back and think about chief officers. Like there's not a lot out there for chief officers. Like, you know, we all went to a retreat, a bunch of chiefs put on by the BCP FFA. And they, they brought a bunch of chiefs up there four days with Dr. David Cool out of UBC and Dr. Duncan Shields. It was absolutely amazing. But what they said when we were in there, holy smokes, we, we were trying to get a gauge on what we should do for firefighters and you guys are walking time bombs. Mm-hmm. Well, we went through a whole career to get to these positions. Of course we are. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, ma- we manage our dysfunction just like everyone else. And I think people can learn from that. And maybe that's the thing that needs to change is like, there's nothing wrong with you if, if you have a, you know, a moment of sadness and you need to cry. There's nothing wrong with you when you have to tell people you manage your dysfunction. You, I think you don't want to normalize depression or sadness because you don't want people to think it's okay where they don't have to reach out for help. But I think what we need to do is we need to say, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing I think, because what happens is when you are depressed and you're feeling hopeless and maybe you get to a point where you think the world might be a better place without you, that's when you need to know, okay, this, this is wrong. And people don't realize that. They don't realize how bad of shape they're actually in. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing that needs to change. How does that change? I just think we keep telling people are their stories. The more stories that are out there, the more people will feel like, okay, if that person went through this, that's similar to what I went through. I think that's what's happening. You see professional athletes out there. You're seeing people tell their very personal stories it's mm-hmm. very hard to do that i can assure you mm-hmm. and i wouldn't be doing it if i didn't lose a good buddy i can tell you that right now i would not have written a book uh, i probably i didn't well, after he took his life i stopped speaking about mental health I, every emotion that i struggled with before came back i questioned mm-hmm. everything i i ended up resigning from that department i went and spent some time with my family for a while and then i started to get calls to come back to the fire service and mm-hmm. most calls i said i wasn't ready but then when my old department phoned uh it's a pretty special thing to work in you know one of the busiest fire departments mm-hmm. in canada as an ops chief and yeah I'm, I'm speaking from a position of strength now not weakness so it's easy for me now it's easier yeah so that's kind of where I'm at. It's easy to be out there and helping crush the stigma when you're speaking from a position of strength. It's very hard to do it when you're struggling. You don't want to hear stories. Mm-hmm. You don't want, you just, just want to be left alone. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Well, and the more, more that people like you are speaking out, then people have got more people to speak to and to hear what their journey was and what worked for them. Do you think that, I, I know we've been encouraging and we're seeing a lot more women starting to um, choose firefighting as a career, will that have an influence? And what's yeah, your that, experience? Uh, so we were the first department in British Columbia to hire female firefighters in 1992. Um, you know, I got asked probably a year afterwards from another department, how are they as if they were Martians? Cause it was a boys <laughs> club back then. And I'm like, they are awesome. Like, and they, they, and I see even the way I'm talking, they, those firefighters were unbelievable because everybody expected for them to struggle and they didn't. In mm-hmm. fact, they led right away 
right as rookies, right as firefighters, and now one's retired and the other's one of the best captains on the job. And it has nothing to do with them being women. They're, they're just great leaders. And the interesting thing about that comment that I made, they're doing awesome. Like, oh man, they're, they're amazing. And what they did was by our department actually stepping out and doing that, it knocked the top of the testosterone off mm. the fire culture. Mm-hmm. Like it really did um, because it brought, and the female perspective at a traumatic call is very different from the macho men's mm-hmm. perspective. The empathetic, we, we were able to learn based on having, you know, people like that and now mentors like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it made, it's one of the best things that ever happened to the fire service without question. Um, is it tough? You know, when I made that comment, you know, they're doing awesome. That's Steve saying that I never took the time to ask them how they were doing. So mm-hmm. how do I know how they did? I'm sure they have some, some stories that were, are not pleasant. And I, I just never asked them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and I, be, I am very careful when I speak about the fire service is not to speak about women's issue because I'm not a woman and I don't know mm-hmm. what they've gone through. But I do know uh, for the fire service in general, one of the best things to happen, hands down, no question. And it, it, it's probably in the top three historically of things that have happened in the fire service period. Um, uh, it's made it a better, it's made it a better resource, better service. Um, and you know what? I think the firefighters themselves have changed um, for the better. That doesn't surprise me. And I certainly watched lots of incredible leadership um, <laughs> from both the men and the women uh, in the fire departments that I've worked with. I know that statistics such as the ones that we've noted already have really fueled your passion for changing and making it okay to admit not being okay. I want to move to your book. You've written about your own personal experience in The Unbroken. I know it's a page turner because you kindly allowed me to read a copy of that before it was actually published. Can you tell us a little bit more about, and you've shared a little bit about your personal journey, but um, and, and also a little bit about why the book, but um, can you talk a little bit more and, and maybe include in that The Unbroken, that seemed an interesting title for uh, a system that seems quite broken. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it, again, it's that position of strength. I don't know if I would be releasing a book if I was struggling like I was. And I think the title, The Unbroken, at my lowest point, um, I hadn't slept in four days. Uh, I was crying in my doctor's office and she was just holding my hand while I cried. And after I'd say about 15 minutes, she said, Steve, what do you want? And I said, I just want to be unbroken. That's what came out of my mouth. Mm. And she said, you're not broken, you're wounded. Mm. And just like a hamstring injury or a broken leg, you need to go for treatment, physiotherapy for your mind to get well again, and you can do it. And I'll never forget that analogy. Mm-hmm. And that's why I talk about post-traumatic stress injuries as a post-traumatic stress disorder. I wasn't disordered. I, was, I thought I was broken, and she said I was wounded. She changed broken mm-hmm. to wounded. And I, Context. yeah, so I remember that moment and I called it the unbroken because I wasn't broken. I'm actually, I'm unbroken. 
Um, but I can say that from a position of strength. I, I wrote this book as a, a therapeutic process, as a counselor I was seeing many years ago in, in the early 2000s. And I saw, she was the fourth counselor I'd seen. My wife was adamant. I continued the process. I was struggling with the first three. I didn't want to talk about my childhood and they really wanted to go there. Of course, I stated when we're not talking about my childhood, what's the first thing a psychologist is going to want to go to, right? But <laughs> I, uh, and the, when I switched counselors and I ended up going to this amazing counselor, I said, first meeting, is there anything you want to talk about? Is there anything you don't want to talk about? I, I told her, I want to talk about this trauma that I'm having nightmares about and I'm not sleeping and, and I don't want to talk about my childhood. And she said, fine. She made some notes. And I said, what do you mean, fine? She goes, you want to talk about your childhood? We don't have to. I was like, okay, can I have another cup of tea? And so that's how the first session started. <laughs> By the second session, I was unprovoked, openly talking about my childhood. Like, so wow. that's a good counselor. That's a connection with a counselor. So after a couple of sessions, she goes, Steve, you have a lot of guilt and shame about that, that past. She goes, do you like, I'm going to give you an exercise. I want you to start every time you leave a session, just spend a few minutes writing some things down. You remember about your childhood, good and bad. Well, I'd spend an hour writing down from our session. And I need people need to know when you're struggling with something and you write it on a piece of paper, it's almost like it comes out of your body. Mm -hmm. It's very therapeutic. So I really enjoyed that part of the process. It was very confidential. Mm -hmm. By the time I, I went to her for a long time. So I had this book of <laughs> notes in my closet <laughs> and I kept it there for many, many years. I never looked at it. Um, it was very therapeutic, but it wasn't, the closure wasn't there. She had me separate good and bad. And she had me, she, what she had me do is rewrite my narrative of my own story. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents were alcoholics. I blame my parents for everything. And she just challenged me on those stands I took. And she, she showed me my parents were beautiful people. They mm -hmm. just suffered from depression and they medicated with alcohol because that's what they did in those days. You know, maybe they shouldn't have been married. Maybe the things I did, the, I stole things. I did things. I hurt people. I, I mean, my wife makes a joke. Steve quit smoking and ran away from home when he's in grade six. It's a true story, but I'd only smoked for two months. I didn't like it. Um, I, I was a bad kid. I hung around with older kids that were bad kids. Um, mm -hmm. So she helped me rewrite my own story. And it was good, but I didn't really connect with everything until I was in that retreat, that men's initiative put on by Dr. David Cool and Duncan Shields. They had me, so when they got all these, us there, we sit in a big circle, they had us do the same exercise. Now you only had a couple hours, but it was the same exercise. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't tell them I had a book in my closet. I'd already <laughs> done this exercise. My wife knew and a counselor knew. Mm -hmm. So when they, when we all came back the next day, we we're there for four days, we sat in a circle and they said, you do not have to read what you write. So when I'm sitting in that circle, the first person reads their story. I am bawling my eyes out. I feel pride. And I'm that a, for a person, I don't even know. Second person reads their story. Same thing. Third, mm -hmm. I'm the fourth person. And I, there's no way I'm reading that story. It gets to me. I read that whole story. Mm -hmm. And I did it because there's a wave of empathy. And there was a person off to the left of me and he thought 
he said, we're just here to kick the tires. We're just here to see what this is like for firefighters. He said, I have no desire to be here. It's a waste of my four days. I got so much work to do. He went on this huge rant when we all sat down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The story this person read was so tough to listen to. We had to take a break. Wow. And what, what the doctors did is they had us rip out the negatives and throw them away. And for this person's story, we all stood in a circle, held hands, and burnt his story. Wow. He said it was the most therapeutic thing he'd ever done in his life. And he saw something happen when he was a very small boy. And he has never told anybody that story. Susan, wow. how common do you think that is with people? Lots. It's Lots that hidden. People. Yeah. yeah. People hide it from themselves. Obviously, he didn't, he didn't see, he didn't think there was anything that he was there for. He was, he was horrified by that event and he couldn't tell anybody. And, you know, so I was ashamed of my past and my childhood. And when they did that exercise, I could hear that counselor going, you've been dragging your past around your whole life. You, it's time to let it go, Steve, let it go. So um, the only other person I had told about those notes was my friend, Ken Gill. Um, and he inspired me to complete it as a book and give it to my kids. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. He said, because sitting there in your closet, you didn't finish it, Steve. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, why don't you finish it and give it to your kids? So when he took his life, I spent an hour a day writing, cleaning it up. I showed it to my son's friend who just, just graduated from university and he'd written his own book. And I said, can you clean this up for me and tell me what you think? And he said, Steve, you should show this to an editor. So I did. I just brought it to an editor and said, would you mind reading this? And she said, is this something you want to publish? I said, no, I just want to finish it. But I was told to show it to an editor. She goes, you have to publish this. This is mm -hmm. super powerful. Mm -hmm. I said, I can't. It's like, a, it's like a little boy's diary. There are very personal things in there. There's no way I'm publishing this book. So she said, okay, we can remove some of those things. Let's, would you be interested if I worked at it? So she worked away. And uh, every time I came to a part that I want to remove, she's going, no way. That's what makes it real. So <laughs> I did get to tone some things down, um, but there's still parts in there that I would never leave in if it was up to me. But I did. I left them in. So I'm pretty exposed being out there. But uh, to be honest, I think boys, uh, puberty is a very terrifying, weird time for them. And I wrote that, wrote that down in my diary. So that stayed in there for the most part. I had a girlfriend in high school that, you know, told me something that totally freaked me out because in high school, you don't have any tools to deal with anything. Mm -hmm. You know, they teach you what to learn. They don't teach you how to learn. Mm -hmm. And I was challenged with something and it might not even been true, but what she told me, it really affected me. And, you know, she was a really good kid and, you know, I wanted nothing to do with her because I couldn't handle what she's told me and how she was treating me and what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite common with teenagers. Absolutely. So I had no skills to help her. So my only thing, which is quite common with anything in life is when you can't handle something, you, you stay away from it. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, if I had had different skills, if I was who I am now, maybe I could have helped her and I have no ill will towards her at all. But I, I do wish when you look back in your life, if you could have changed some things, I wish I had skills to help that person because she's definitely struggling and hurting. And it's hard. It's hard when you're an adult and you look back and you see mm -hmm. things you missed, right? Yeah. So yeah. 
so that's the book. It is a, it's a diary of a little boy and a journey into a fire service and how someone who's been dragging their past around their entire life and also suffers from depression, which many people do, it's a bunch of calls that triggered an event which allowed me to expose all of that. And that's why I say the power of post-traumatic stress. We can look at it as a negative or we can look at it as an opportunity to get stronger. And I, man, I'm at the highest level uh, I could be at. I'm performing at a very high level. I feel I'm being tested at a very high level. Um, I'm very, you know, for the first time in my life, very proud of myself. And I've never said that before. You know, I wrote that book and went through that initiative. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I tell myself self-positive talk in the morning. I'm very easier on myself than I was. I was very hard on myself my whole life. And I never recognized that until I went to that initiative where they would tell me something positive and I would look at the ground every time. And I, one of the doctors said, Steve, we've been noticing you for two days. We've noted every time someone says something nice or positive about you, you look at the ground. Why do you think that is? And I'm like, mm. I didn't even know I did that. And they're like, we know why. Because something's happened in your life where you can't accept a, comp mm -hmm. a compliment. You're very hard on yourself. Mm -hmm. I was like, geez, really? I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So they worked on me with affirmations in the morning. Steve, it's going to be a great day. You're a good person. You're going to do some good work today. You know what? I start my day that way. And I, you know what? I do do a little bit of good work every day. And I, I, I cherish my victories instead of you know, thinking of those negatives, which we all do, I cherish my victories now. So that's why I said I'm proud of myself because I, I am. Yeah, you, you better be because you're getting a lot of applause already. And you're out there and your, your book is, I know, going to be a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Before I talk a little bit about the huge guts that it's taken for you to be doing what you're doing, you in your podcast always wish to mention headsupguys.org out of UBC. So can you just tell us a little bit about, I know it's really a, an important organization to you. Um, the one personal thing that I will tell you about Heads Up Guys that when my brother in 1999 took his life, and if Heads Up Guys had been around, I believe if he was looking online, he would have been redirected to a resource like heads up guys mm -hmm. and he'd still be here wow. and i can say that like it like that because they have hundreds and hundreds of letters from people that have said i was going to kill myself well, heads up guys knows how they ended up on their website mm -hmm. and i didn't i want to thank you for saving my life they have hundreds and hundreds of emails wow so a non-profit organization at university of british columbia that's you know a lot of the rock prince Terry. A lot of people have made, oh, I'm just playing my part, Susan. I'm just mm -hmm. doing a little part to, you know what, bring, bring awareness more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, I told uh, them that I would raise, try and raise $10,000 in, in, don in donations on my own and a million dollars in awareness. And they laughed, wow. but, but I, you know what, I just so believe in this resource. It's free. It's done for all the right reasons. It's super effective. And it, it's a personal note with me. So it's a nice, it's a really nice thing for uh, uh, people to raise money for and to help people. But the thing is, you really don't know unless you write an email and they help a lot of people. It's, it's cool. It's a cool thing to be part of for me. Good, good. And we'll make sure that that's on the uh, show notes. 
for the podcast so that if people are interested in, in taking a look themselves, Steve, it takes huge guts to be doing what you're doing. Um, I know you were booked across North America before the pandemic hit and speaking engagements. You've spoken with dozens of fire departments already. Um, and I know that you're often called because fire chiefs are concerned about the suicide rates within their ranks. Uh, and it's a tragedy that no one talks about and you're, you're bringing it to light so that we have to talk about it. They're critical conversations. And, and I know from working in local government that the fire services is not the only area. There are lots of other occupations where there's similar perceptions of who people should be what they should be, should be able to handle and uh, resulting in similar fears. And it's just so important that uh, people like you are shining the light on the realities of the occupations and how to cope with, uh, with some of the realities. Any final thoughts before we bring this to a conclusion? Anything that I haven't asked that you wish I had? You know, most of my friends are either firefighters and many of my friends are police officers, uh, but I, I know that everybody struggles with similar issues. It's not just for first responders. And the, the one thing, you know, I can say is that when people are struggling, um, there has to be a way for them to reach out and be comfortable. Even talking to my own wife who is super supportive. Like she's a, she's a, I call her a stud. She's a stud when it comes to supporting her husband, when it comes to his mental health, she's a <laughs> nurse. She did her practicum in Riverview. If anybody knows that hospital on a psych ward, both of my kids attended Queens, both took psychology. I have a lot of support in my life mm -hmm. yet. I still found it hard to talk to my own family. So mm -hmm. if I'm finding it hard with all that support, how is somebody who's by themselves and struggling going to reach out. And, you know, the reason I'm not afraid to talk about suicide is because uh, I think that's the only way we, we change those, those stats. You know, it's a, it's a temporary solution. It's a permanent solution to a temporary situation. Mm -hmm. And if we could just get that person to tomorrow, mm -hmm. um, we can make a difference. And I've witnessed every possible way someone could take their life. I've witnessed people actually take their lives. I've been in multiple suicide intervention situations. And I can tell you, there's no magic pill when it comes to mental health and mental illness. There's no exact answer. Everybody has their own factory settings and you never know what someone's going through. And if I could leave you with one thing, the listeners with one thing, if you think someone's struggling, ask them, how mm -hmm. are you doing? If you're worried someone is thinking about taking their life, you're seriously concerned about them, ask them if they're thinking of harming themselves. And everybody's afraid to intervene. I'm going to mm -hmm. give you the simplest intervention technique you could have. If somebody in your family or a friend is struggling and you're really worried about them, you phone the crisis line, you sit down beside them and you hand them the phone. Bam, there's simple intervention right there. Wow. That's, Thank you. That's how simple it is. So mm -hmm. there you go. That's what I'll leave you with. Perfect. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I encourage people to dare to soar and you're doing it. You're feeling the fear and you're doing it anyway. I just, yeah. Thank you. Thanks from for my bottom of my heart. And I hope through uh, listening to um, us today that um, people 
can reach out to the headsupguys.org at UBC, uh, Steve's podcast, Undercover Mental Health. He's got a variety of interesting topics on sleep tidbits, mind shift shifts, um, box breathing. That's a really important one. And of course, there's that So You Want to Become a Firefighter. There's the book, The Unbroken. And uh, just taking a look at Steve's website. All of that information is available on the podcast podcast show notes available on your um, your favorite podcast platform. Just, I hope that this helps other people. If you're interested in connecting with Steve directly, he can be reached at Steve Serbic and it's Steve, S-T-E-V-E, Serbic, S-E-R-B-I-C.com or Steve at muscularmentalhealth.com. Oh yeah, and there's also the TEDx talk on YouTube uh, if you're interested in taking a look at that. Stephen, I hope that you've enjoyed today's session and found it interesting and informative to listen to. Got some sort of some nuggets to take away with you. If you have, please consider signing up for the podcast series HR Inside Out, demystifying HR and people management, and leaving a review so that others might benefit from the learning. Uh, again, if you wish to connect with either of us, our contact information is available on the podcast description page. I'll be back again next week as we move on to talking about employee engagement, why that's so important to your happiness and to your organization's success. I hope you will join me again as you, you guessed it, dare to soar. It's time to fly, Steve. Thank you so very much for making the time to be with us today and sharing your personal story and some ideas for people to consider if they're struggling themselves or perhaps there's someone that they care about that might be struggling. Um, and just thank you for the courage that you're putting out into the world, uh, helping others. Thanks, Susan. Nice to see you again. All the best in you and your journey. And uh, yeah, we'll cross paths again in the future at some time. So thanks I, so much for having me on. I look really forward to that. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Well, we've reached our destination for today. Time to lower those wheels and prepare for landing. Thank you for joining me. If I said something that resonated with you, please subscribe to the podcast and to share it with others. It would be awesome if you also took the time to provide a review, whatever your favorite social media sites are. If you have a question or an area that you hope I'll cover in a future session, please send me a note, either to my website, www.effectingchangefromwithin.com or to my email, susangene at gmail.com. I look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, soar high. I believe you can. Susan signing off. Thanks again for joining me.